Welcome to the Our Safe Harbor Church podcast. Here you can listen to our Sunday sermon, Monday morning message, and midweek Bible study. We hope you will consider subscribing, sharing, leaving a review, but please be sure to check out our website at www.OurSafeHarbor.com to learn more about us and find ways to get involved. Our Safe Harbor Church, we are with you wherever you are. was 
That was hard. So is that the God we find? Um, for a lot of people it is because they've not actually done the work which we're doing here in this sermon series and in the long-form videos. Please let us know how those are working for you. When I say long-form, tomorrow morning it's about an hour and a half. Next Monday morning, an hour and a half. The third and final is just about an hour. So they're not that long-form compared to others, but a lot longer than normal. How would you describe God? I, that's a hard job, isn't that? I think we could all agree there are no words, no adequate terms that would completely describe our God. In fact, I've often said, if God actually ever showed us the totality of his majesty, it would blow every circuit we had. We couldn't quite handle that. It would be like trying to explain quantum physics to a cricket. It's just not worth your while. And also, by the way, aren't you glad God doesn't treat us like we were just bugs and crickets? Instead, he unfolds things in front of us slowly and slowly. And the Bible helps us here. It helps us draw closer by the use of metaphors. A metaphor is a word we know that, when applied to something we don't fully know, brings us closer to that unknown thing. It's different from being literal or symbolic. It isn't a simile. A simile you can always see because it'll say, God is like. That would be a simile. But the Bible uses, uh, and by the way, the Bible uses some similes, but the metaphors, a lot of metaphors. If you're having a hard time grasping, I'll illustrate. In, in Psalm 31, and many other places actually as well, God is called a rock. Our God is a rock. In Psalm 23, you know that one? The shepherd's song. He is called a shepherd. God is a shepherd. And the heartbreaking Hosea 11, absolutely heartbreaking chapter. God is called a parent, a human parent. Now, no metaphor paints an absolute, perfect, complete picture of God, but some bring us closer than others. This is really important we get this. Here's a fact you may not have known about metaphors. Not all metaphors are the same. They're trying to describe something bigger than themselves, and some of them get closer than others. For example, most of us would agree that God is closer to a shepherd than a rock. And I think we talked most about it. We would agree that God's more like a parent than a shepherd. Okay? Some metaphors, in other words, are more accurate or useful. We call those controlling metaphors. We want to look for the controlling metaphors in Scripture that tell us who our God is. Now, in Calvinism, which had its birth in Switzerland, but really gained its power in Scotland uh, through John Knox, who was an apostle of John Calvin, and took it up a few notches, the Calvinist view is that God, being sovereign, created the world, he acts upon it. The world is, does not have agency. God has planned all things before the creation of the world. Every part of your life has already been laid out. Salvation or not has already been laid out. It is part of God's wondrous plan. All direction in Calvinism is one way. From God to us, from God to us. Upon us. However, 
controlling metaphors in Scripture about God reveal an interactive God. Did, have you ever, we got to go see some museums this week, which was great. We have a, a Ray Smith who did our communion here, exceptionally well-versed in the history of this place. And he took a bunch of us over and we had a ball. We really did. See, if you come to the sound stage, there are some pluses. Uh, it, it, it was a wonderful thing. Whenever we asked him questions, he would tell us stories. Well, why? Because when you're asking questions about nuclear energy and splitting atoms or fusing atoms or the sun and such, I would submit to you the stories work better than raw fact. Right? Have you ever been in a museum that all you could do is look through the glass? Now, I'm wired in such a way that I still enjoy that. Uh, most museums now know people want to do things. They want interaction. Move this lever. Push this button. Make a choice. Open this thing up. God is not behind glass. God is interactive with us. He is responsive to what happens in the world. He is affected by what occurs here, resulting in, and we will prove this, so don't get in a huff yet. Huffs are always out there into which you may climb, but not yet. God responds to us and changes his plans accordingly. A change in direction, a change in style, a change in modality. He is a God that is interactive. So, what kind of God created the world? Well, one who wanted to be engaged in it. And God is maddeningly creative. I'm not an exceptionally creative person. I can work with your know, language and the like, and that's, that's all kind of good, but my wife's a very creative person, and so she will, she'll talk to me about what she does, and I don't understand any of it, but I like you know, listening to her and looking at her, so we're good. Uh, and I'll, I'll understand some art, I don't understand others. But God's creativity. I look at the world, and in fact, Romans 1 tells us everything that can be known about God can be known by the things he created. I wonder how many preachers could get away with saying that today. Now I'm going to get fired because they didn't first say it's all in the book. It's in the book, too. And they didn't first say it's all in our rules. Those probably aren't in the book. Look at what God made. He is playful, creative, frightening, funny. All of those things. If you've never thought of God as funny, he taught bees how to dance, for goodness sake. He made giraffes. We don't need giraffes. Giraffes are an extra. I, I am not anti-giraffe. I'm happy they're on the planet. Uh, I, the platypus, no need. Uh, but extra parts from different classes of animals shoved together is fun. Baboons, he painted rainbows on their rear ends. There's no, there's no reason for this except for joy. Absolute joy. Here's the crucial thing. God tries to tell us about this time and time again, but we miss it in our hunt for the rules, the restrictions. Why do we want rules and restrictions? Well, a couple things. One, it's easier to follow rules than be in a relationship. 
it was so much easier. Married my wife over 44 years ago. Still a girlfriend of mine, but, uh, and wife now for that long. Uh, but husband, what would have happened if on day one, day two, anywhere there, I would just say, right, so we're married. Um, if I understand the contract, this is binding. So, I need a list on the fridge of everything I'm supposed to do to stay within this relationship boundaries. What kind of marriage do you think this would be? I would submit a, a rather short one. Um, we would have had to move back to America because the refrigerators are, are too small in Britain for the length of the list. Um, but it still wouldn't work, would it? It's not a relationship. It's not interactive. We draw those lines because it's easier to do that than be in a relationship. But we also do it for a very dark reason. We draw lines around the rules and say, this is our rule, these are our rules, so that we can distinguish ourselves from other people. We follow the rules, they do not. I grew up with that mentality to the point where it is still very difficult for me to remind myself not to draw the lines. And it's hard. Some of you know this, because you've been with us since day one, or you've come on in the last four months, whatever it was. And you'll, you'll email me and say, what about these people? It is that drive to distinguish ourselves from others, and we don't need to do that. We are. We are who we are, and we're in a relationship. The God of Calvinism does not respond like a good parent or a good shepherd. But our God tells us he wants to dance with us, walk with us, respond to us. He walked with Adam and Eve in the garden every evening from the time that they were chosen by him. And when they were cast out, he immediately set about creating a way for them to get back to him, spend time with him. He responded with the flood to the sin of mankind, yeah. But he also responded with manna, with quail. He responds. Think of this. It's all through scripture. He responds. How can he respond if all we are is a wind-up toy where everything had already been determined before creation to flow a certain direction and God has decreed and we are completely helpless? That would just be a wind-up toy. God didn't do that. He responds. First John 4. We're going to do several verses out of this today. But verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. About three years ago, I heard a leader of a church stand up to preach when he told the people there that God requires us to be holy. Fair enough, I'm with you so far. And that, in fact, holiness is the most important thing to God. I'm starting to lose my grip here. And then he said, because God never said he was love. God says, I am holy. And I'm like, what? My phone lit up from young couples and older people saying, did you hear what I heard? And I'm going, I did. And my wife's looking across at me with jaw dropped. And I'm like, what did I just hear? Now, can, can God be love and holy? Of course he is. But whenever you want to elevate one over the other, i got to tell you something. It's love that is his greatest character trait. 
It is love, which is the controlling metaphor. And we can prove it, and we're going to prove it in the next several sermons, next few Monday mornings. Hope that you hang with us for the whole trip. It's actually going to be a great trip. This is great news, by the way. This is incredibly great news. Because the God I was raised with, I ran from because there was no reason to try to run to him. You were always going to fail. You were always going to fail and, and live in shame. So I ran from him. When I can remember when somebody sent us a couple of books. Um, I still don't remember who sent us the books. Uh, they were by Max Lucado. Give credit to him. Credit is due. Uh, God came near, and no wonder they called him the Savior. I was sick, and I, so I didn't have anything else to do. The internet hadn't shown up yet, so I read the books. And my first thought was, this would be incredible and wonderful and the best news ever. I just wish it was true. I couldn't get past the pain and the shame. But it was still there in my brain. And then I started reading on my own and found out God isn't like love. God is love. There are only two direct representations or descriptions of reality of God. Because even God being holy, that's based on action. But God is love and God is spirit. Those two have no action corollary except to say this is who he is. Look at the context. Remember, a text without a context is a pretext. Always check the context. First John chapter 4. And we're going to like skip your rock across the lake here. All right? We did verse 8. I'll do it again. Whoever does not love does not know God because God is love. So let's just lay this out. You can know the Bible backwards and forwards in Greek and in Hebrew. You can absolutely understand everything about theology and absorb it all. But if you do not love more than what you know, you have failed. Well, you, you don't have God. You've got information. You've got a stand. You've got a platform. But you don't have love. Verse 9, this is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. That we might have life through his son. i got to tell you something. It is not easy sending your son. Cammy uh, and I, this last week, we, we went across to Oak Ridge, which is where they did much of the work, and I could go on and on, but then I'd have to bring Ray up here to correct everything I said, uh, to end the war, World War II. Had it not been for Oak Ridge, that war would have gone a lot, lot longer. And they, there were signs up there in the museums, what have you done for the war effort? And I looked over at Cammie and I said, well, we made a Marine. Um, that was, that's, that's, I, I think that counts. But I got to tell you, whenever he walked out of that front door and said, I'll see you in the stands, which means 12, 13 weeks later, we'll see him muster out, muster into the, the core, but um, out of basic. That when I shut the door, I fell, I fell into the wall and couldn't move. Sending your son, that's a, that's a, that's a big thing. And yet, I knew the odds. I knew the odds. The odds were incredibly good. I was getting my son back fine. God knew one out of one. He's going to be scarred. He's going to be wrecked with pain. And yet, he sent 
his son. Um, verse 10. This is love. Not that we've loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Let's just skip forward here. Verse 15 and 16. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the son of God, God lives in them and they in God. Let me ask you a question. Whatever church you go to, or if you, whatever church you left, was that enough for them? Was that enough for them? Anyone that acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God is fine with God. Is that okay with you? Already I'm hearing the emails hit my inbox. But what about people who do this? What about people who do this? Well, what about this first? Let's not play uh, as if this was a card game and you had a series of trump cards to beat what John just said. Why don't we think about, is it true that if anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they are in God, verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love God has for us. My mother's going through a very difficult time. She's been placed under hospice care about three weeks, a month ago. And whenever we die at that age, she's in her 90s, there's a race between the body and the brain. You know, and it's a, it's a very difficult thing to watch. And at times, only a few times, has she said, I'm sorry, I'm taking up so much of your time. And I'm saying, no, this is what love does. Well, love, love takes time. Love interrupts the day. I can remember, you know, as a child, I'm sure I never took her time. I never disappointed her, interrupted anything. Because as you can tell, I was just such an easy kid to raise. You know, if this stood alone, we would just say, thank you, Jesus. But too many of us have too much pain and shame in the way to do for us to do that. So let's just not say it stands alone. Let's have a look. The psalmist in, in Psalm 103, verse 8, says, God is abounding in steadfast love. I like both of those terms now. Abounding, which means it got more than he, he can hold on to. Steadfast means it's not going away. Have you ever been in a church where you're saved? Not saved. Saved. Not saved. Because you're breaking some rules here? What would my, my adult children have to do? Have to do. Let me phrase them get the right tone for me to stop loving them. Anybody got an idea? Anybody got an idea? Well, of course you know. They couldn't. What would my grandkids have? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. They could have flamethrowers. Absolutely nothing. Don't have flamethrower kids. He has everlasting love for his people. Isaiah 54, 8. How long will God love you? As long as you obey, the scripture says everlasting love. Deuteronomy 7, 8, he says, my love is because I, is the reason I brought you out of Egypt. Notice what he didn't say. My plans. Or he had it sorted. No, they were in Egypt. They saw what was happening and he reacted in love because that's what love does. Love reacts. Have you ever told somebody you love them and they don't answer back? Well, does that show you love requires a response? And that it must be a voluntary response? Or it's not a real response? 
which means God responds to us, which means he is open to reacting and changing with us. Oh, but there's more. There's so much more. Um, Jeremiah 31, in verse 3, if you're not going to read the whole chapter, but 31, 3, he says, I have drawn you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with loving kindness. Isaiah says in Isaiah 63, verse 9, in his love and mercy he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days old. Notice the words which are not there. It was already planned. It was already in order. Just the unfolding of God's will in its immutable way. No. He saw people who were sinful, but who, who were hurting, and he picked them up and he carried them. God is love. It is the controlling metaphor. It is also relational. Uh, I think we all love Romans, especially chapters 5 and 8. So now we're going to go to chapter 5 and verse 8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Please remember, one of the tenets of the tulip of Calvinism says that Christ did die for everybody. He just died for the elect. Paul While you were sinners. You know, again, talking about children, children cost a lot. They, they get sticky. Um, they have interesting smells. And they, uh, they kind of change the schedule, don't they? And I can see why people have a, a child. I really can. I've often wondered why, why the second? Did you not see the disruption this brought in? Of course, we had two as well. And we would have had more, but God said two, we took two. Uh, my daughter has three. I'd, she's really good at this, so I'd like more, but we're told we're done. And our son has two, and we're done there too. But here's the point. Didn't you know they were going to cost you money, time, sleep, worry? Yes. Why'd you do it? Love. And God is using the same metaphor to explain to us who he is. For God so loved the world. Richard Rice puts it this way. Love is not something God happens to do. It is the one divine activity that most fully and vividly discloses God's inner reality. Love, therefore, is the very essence of the divine nature. Love is what it means to be God. End of quote. Does God get angry? Oh yeah, sure. Which, again, makes me wonder why predestination is even taught. How can you get angry over something you planned? It just doesn't make sense, people. It doesn't. And I'll, every time you bring up verses like this, though, a Calvinist will say, those are just anthropomorphic. In other words, it's just putting human terms to explain a greater reality. Well, here's the thing. He put them in human terms because, work with me, the vast majority of the target base will be human. Therefore, he's not using misleading terms. He's using accurate terms, as accurate as we can understand. By the way, read Psalm 30. Hone in on verse 5. Read, read Isaiah 54, verse 8. God's anger is always limited in Scripture. God's love never is. 
anger is limited, but not as love. And I'm saying always, and I, it's on the table. You, you find me in, I've read this book a bit. Check to see if you can find where I'm wrong here. In fact, the only time he's ever called an angry God, that he is angry. Not, not as in, you don't want to make him angry, like, you know, it's a fearful thing to fall in the hands of a living God. That doesn't say angry, but you get the idea. The only time he's called an angry God is in one book, and I guarantee you don't even know where it is. Well, you may know in the order, because you've got the song in your head. Nahum, chapter 1, verse 2. That's it. And that was polemic against the rebellious city, hang with me here, of Nineveh, that he changed his mind and didn't destroy. So the one time he's called angry, he pulls back. Wow. When God reveals himself, he reveals a God of love, who is in love, abounds in love. It's not a quality or an attribute. It is who he is. And he sent Jesus to prove it. And when we see God on the cross, left, beaten, nails, all the horror. And I ask people sometimes with this, and you already know the question, and you know the answer. I'll say, um, how many thieves did Jesus forgive when he was on the cross? Everybody goes, oh, that one. That he forgave all of them. He even forgave the guys failing him. He forgave the crowds cheering for him. He forgave everybody on the cross. Don't talk to me about the elect. We're all elect because we're made in his image. Love is a concrete reality that unifies all the attributes of God, his goodness, his grace, his righteousness. Yes, his holiness, his wisdom, his patience, all are expressions of love. For he is love. God's love is in two forms. For those of you that do sociology, it is social and it is dynamic. We know what the social is. We've talked about that. The giving the take, walking in the garden, sending a son. What's dynamic? Dynamic means you respond. For something to be alive, there's, there's a whole list of things that has to happen before we say that thing is alive. Whether it's a, not a molecule, those don't count. But you know, a microorganism, a one-cell organ, or microorganism, whatever it is, one of them is it has to react to stimuli. God reacts. He, he reacts to what he creates. My, uh, my grandsons still are convinced that somewhere I know how to play. I grew up in a house where I really didn't have that option. And so I often feel like the guy on a beach where everybody else is having a good time and I'm wearing a three-piece suit and it's really hot. I, I feel out of place. But they are still convinced. You know, I've had more than one frisbee bounce off my forehead. Yeah, they're thinking, grand up dogs can do this. Keep working with me. But when they say, let's play, I don't say, eh. Why? Because I love them. They love me. It requires dynamism. He creates things, and he says that it is good. And here's a word I want you to look for in Scripture, because it's everywhere in Scripture. He delights. When I look out on a soccer field and I see, I'm not going to use their names, the Internet's a dark place, the middle grandson. I can almost see his dimples from where I am. Then I'll see the little one. 
who has his hair like Zimmerman, the National Soccer Club, and I'm sure all of you know. And I, I'm looking at it, what's the first thing I do? I smile. I delight in them. What does God do when he looks at you? He smiles. It's not the the disapproval. You were taught about a God that doesn't exist. Psalm, oh, sorry, Psalm 149, verse 4. The Lord delights in everything he made. He takes delight in his children. He crowns a humble with salvation. Humble there doesn't mean, oh, that's not, you know, I'm not worthy. Humble there means you're really beaten down. You have been humbled by life. And he puts a crown of salvation on you. Jeremiah 9. I love Jeremiah, even though it's a mixed up book. It really is. It's not in time order. You have to kind of get the key to read it to, to get it. But John, Jeremiah 9, verse 24. I am Yahweh, who exercises kindness, justice, and righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. Have you noticed something? We always heard about the justice, the righteousness, the holiness, and if we qualify, there might be salvation. But God here, speaking for himself, about himself, leads with kindness. Wow. But there's more. The delight shows up uh, with creation, and in Hosea, this is very, very important that you hear what I'm about to say. A lot of you will not like this. Some of you will shrink back from this. Some of you will be troubled about this. Still listen tomorrow to long form hang with us because we can prove this. It's in Scripture. In Hosea, God paints himself as the husband whose dearly beloved wife rejects him and goes and marries others in sequence and plays with promiscuity, degrades herself. And God, as her husband, uses no force, and says, use no force. He uses only love to draw her back. And she comes back to him, and he doesn't put her on probation. He instead makes it very plain that she is wife. Now, you know the story, and you might be going, well, that's really cool. What's shocking about this? Here's what's shocking. It's very plain in Deuteronomy and Leviticus. The laws of purity and the laws of marriage in the Old Testament were not hard to understand. You might not like them, but they were very plain. In the time of Hosea, it was against Levitical and Deuteronomical law. If, uh, and please, I only use... Our names because we're public people already. If my wife were to leave me and marry another, realize, wow, I blew it. Patrick really is the best ever. Hang in. Divorces that guy and comes back to me. I was not allowed to remarry her. That was considered an abomination and unclean. In the Old Testament, it was very, very plain. If your wife left you and married another, she could never return to you, period. And in Hosea, God is saying, I will move her back and I will take her back. 
In other words, here's the payoff. God will break every rule if that's what it takes to love you. Prove me wrong. God will break every rule. Wow. You have trouble with that? You think, well, it's just a Hosea thing. Um, Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 23. Go read those. And remember the problem with the, the parable of the loving father? Uh, people call it the parable of the prodigal son. You're not getting it if you're talking about the prodigal son. It's not about the sins of the prodigal son. It's about the father's love. Because here he comes back, he's got nothing, nothing to commend himself at all. He knows it. He's even prepared a speech to that effect, saying, treat me as the lowest of the lowest of your servants. I have no right to be here. But the Bible says the father saw him when he was still far off and ran to him. God runs to get to you. And when the, the man started his speech, the father wouldn't even let him give his speech about he wasn't worthy. But instead called to the servants, get the robe on him, let's go. There was no, are you sorry? Do you understand what you've done? I'll never forget my sweet little granddaughter. When I told her, because she'd heard me talking on the phone to a man on death row, she asked, well, what's death row? We had to have that talk. Well, what did he do? I had to give her the talk that I don't ever ask that question. I know what I'm told, but I don't. And then she said, how long has he been there? And I told her, he's been there well over 30 years. And her eyes got big. And she goes, that's not right. And I said, well, how long do you think he should be? She, he said, I, she said, I think he should be put in a room for 15 minutes to think about what he did. I wish I was more like her. I really do. But you know something? She didn't forgive him as quick as God did. God will run to you. He won't let you give the speech. We are made in his image. Human emotions reflect the inner experience of God. We'll say that again. Put it on a t-shirt. Human emotions reflect the inner reality of God and our experience of God. He hurts, we hurt. He loves, we love. He strives, we strive. His plans are just that, plans. And I need to say this very quickly, but it will come back again later. I know some of you have read Jeremiah 29. I know the plans I have for you. Are you aware that in the Hebrew, the word plan or plans does not show up in any of the Old Testament? To me, that's a death knell for Calvinism right there. The word are thoughts. I know I'm thinking about you. I know I have thoughts about you. I want you to do well. It changes everything, doesn't it? Well, let's get it right, shall we? which means prayer matters, worship matters. We have young people today at the sound stage. It matters that you took an hour out of your life. It does. We have wee ones running about the place. I was praying. You don't have kid noise in your church. You've got a dead church or eventually it's terminal. But we have others that are thinking about moving into the region. And I'm excited. You don't have to move here. But we'd like, well, we'll come see you as well. We'll bring kids. People are going to keep them. We just do a drive-by. But you, here's the good news. I don't care what you've been told about anymore. We're done with that. You matter to God. 
He loves you. And he's not going to love you more if. No. He loves you. He died for you. He, he did not want you. I've often asked why the cross. Briefly, what then, if he'd held back that, we could say, well, he didn't go all the way. He went all the way. He was all in, and he's still all in. Does he get hurt by you? Absolutely. But does that mean he doesn't love you? Absolutely not. 